Welcome to the number one South Asian radio station in North America. Ruckus Avenue Radio. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle. And as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by current media venture CEO and former Cheddar host, Nora Ali. Stay tuned. So I'm not a tech or finance enthusiast, but during the pandemic I became more and more interested in these topics, and like many, found myself drawn toward them because mostly, even though I'm still a novice in these areas, I feel compelled by how much they intersect with virtually every aspect of our lives. But finding surprises through the discovery process for me has been even more rewarding, particularly as it's led to more questions and avenues to explore, from showcasing the intersections of tech and finance with racial equity and health to thinking about how we can spark creativity and joy from unexpected spaces in these fields. For Nora Ali, the former host and anchor at Cheddar, the business and technology news network, exploring her passions comes from a deep and earnest quest for all of this and more. She's a Harvard quantitative finance grad, a former Goldman Sachs analyst, and has led marketing technology teams. At Cheddar, she successfully pitched and launched several specialty series that were capturing signature issues of our times, food, racial justice, and COVID. Nora is also an accomplished musician, as she's played violin and piano and soloed with several professional orchestras. Nora grew up in Minnesota as a Bangladeshi American and is now on the cusp of launching a new media venture as a co-founder and CEO. I was able to catch up with her, and we started out by chatting about the hard-to-find confidence we yearn for in speaking the language of our families, and perhaps finding that safe space in Clubhouse. So there's got to be a Clubhouse channel someplace where- There has to be. That's like, hey, (laughs) walk in, and it doesn't matter who you are, just hear and speak Bengali, no matter what exactly the (laughs) mistakes are, or just, you know, almost like a comfort zone. Like a no judgment safe space for people trying to resurrect their Bengali. I did take a Bengali class in college, my last semester of senior year. It was five or six people. And it was people like me who grew up in Bangladeshi families, Bengali families, and kind of lost the language, but also partners of people who had been dating or married to Bengali people. And even in that class, of course, it was a safe space because we were all learning together. I just felt like my Bengali should have been better because I grew up in a Bengali household. So my Bengali got okay-ish then, but it's, it's pretty garbage now. Well, it's funny because, you know, it's, it's places like that where you feel safe enough to let those, you know, intersections and, and the slash part of it, right? I'm Bengali American. I'm married to someone who's Bengali or my partner is. And I wonder if like, you know, just having those kind of safe spaces allow for some of these intersections to, to blossom a little bit more for that matter, especially when it comes to, you know, no one wants to either learn or thrive in a sort of shame-based environment. <laughs> That's very true. And even if I do try 
to speak a couple words of Bengali with my older uncles and aunts, they'll kind of chuckle at me because they know that I'm so out of practice and it doesn't sound good and it doesn't feel like a safe space. They're not judging. They just find it funny. But I do ask my parents now, as they get older, as I get older, I ask them, please speak more Bengali to me because I don't want them to lose out on understanding it. And it's hard for them because now they're so used to their, they've been in the U S for so many decades now, it's hard for them to remember even certain words in Bengali. And they're like, well, I don't actually remember what the word for table is. So I'm sorry that I can't teach you what it is. You know, you've been living um, at the sort of vortex of so many intersections throughout your sort of professional life of finance and media and technology this past year of pandemic culture did did that show you anything about the kind of humanity behind all those three which sometimes can feel like they're devoid of human characteristics um you know uh, did you feel like there's a resurrection maybe of that humanity um or you know, are there some human characteristic human characteristics that are actually needed to sort of bind those intersections together? I will say, because I was in anger during the pandemic, I only just left a, a couple months ago. It's really hard to connect with people, and you know this because you're interviewing people for your podcast. It's so much harder to connect with people when you're not just sitting next to them. And I found that even for complete strangers, we would have cycles of, you know, dozens of guests that would come into our studio, out of our studio. The only time that we would have to kind of chit chat before the segment was 30 seconds before we got counted down to being live. And even in those moments, you just have that body language, you have that personal connection. And I I found it difficult at first to really connect over video with people. But at the same time, I got so used to it that I felt that I could focus even better on individuals, just interviewing them over Zoom. And because we were all going through the same thing to varying degrees. But I will say, I think what brought out the humanity more from my perspective in conducting interviews for Cheddar was the renewed conversations around racial injustices. Mm. And it was a common thread. I tried to make it a common thread through every single interview I, I had. And I was just so pleased in many ways that we could now, I could be comfortable, more comfortable bringing that up in every conversation I had versus apologizing for it. Because it was always my core mission, the hill I was ready to die on. We need to hire more diversity. We need to tell more diverse stories. And there was a sense of guilt that I would feel bringing it up over and over and over again with my teams. But I finally felt like people were were really listening and ready to take action. So I think that would be the kind of combining thread of humanity that I found in this last year. And, and is, is trying to bring that out, particularly in these three disciplines of finance and technology and, and even media to some degree, um, are, were there barriers to that? Was that not an easy um, conversation to even initiate or start, especially when, you know, things can be very, very fast paced. Things can be very, mm-hmm. very sort of, you know, bottom line, black and white and binary right. um, in some of those venues. It's not easy when the people who make the decisions and the gatekeepers are those who don't identify with the struggles of of people of color and women and and other marginalized groups. And unfortunately, it's a, I guess it's okay to say, unfortunately, I think all of my bosses have been white men through my whole career, or at least at the highest levels from finance to startup to uh, 
working at Cheddar in the news, but you have to find those, those champions, those sponsors within your company that can identify with the struggle and really feel that personal connection to the issues. So yes, it was a challenge and I did face some pushback sometimes, but that's why it was so fulfilling to be able to bring up those conversations in this last year and have it be met with, wow, you're right. <laughs> you've, yeah. you've been right this whole time. We do need to consider inclusion and representation in everything we do, not just as an afterthought. And it, especially for, for the news space, oftentimes you can conceal the internal lack of representation with who you put on air. Yeah. So we had a very diverse cast of anchors at Cheddar, which was amazing. And I made it my mission to make sure we were also considering that behind the scenes as well. And that's an issue that we talk about in Hollywood all the time is, yeah, we've made great strides for those you know actors who are on camera, but it really matters who's telling the stories behind the scenes, maybe yeah. more so. So yeah, I, I've certainly faced some pushback, but it's been a lot easier just this last year. And I guess it would be you know relatively simpler uh, from at least the outsider's perspective if the topics were society and culture and more mm -hmm. pervasive throughout everything. But particularly when it comes to finance and business, is, is that conversation just one that, you know, sometimes just falls on deaf ears because it's like, hey, it doesn't really matter when it comes mm -hmm. to what's newsworthy or not. Yeah. So going back to my my finance experience, my first job out of college was working at Goldman Sachs. And that you can imagine is in, in general, the world of finance is yeah. driven by and led by white men as well. But I was lucky enough to be on the Asian equities team. So my whole team was of Asian descent, um, Asian American, Japanese folks, Chinese folks, uh, myself, Bangladeshi, etc. So I was kind of in this bubble when I worked at Goldman Sachs, where like literally a bubble where our team, our desks together was this little oasis of diversity. Yeah. And we just understood each other's culture. Our clients were very diverse as a result of us covering Asian equities. So I have to say that I was a little bit Almost isolated. Yeah. 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 I was a little bit isolated from the broader issues of diversity in finance. And I can say I'm, I'm lucky. Um, but that was a, a totally different world in many ways back then, about a, a decade ago when I started, it was just, you didn't think about that sort of thing as much back then. You didn't think about representation and inclusion. And if you're a, a new analyst at Goldman Sachs, you're just trying to hustle, you're trying to work super hard, you're losing sleep. And that in itself is coming up as an issue that people are not okay with. So it was just a totally different world. And I feel lucky that I was embedded in this super diverse team. And I wonder if that's actually now because you were informed in that way through that, is that now sort of lighting your pathway forward as you, you know, start on this new venture to really make sure that that part gets magnified no matter what um, arena you're in? 100%. And it's been lovely to be able to come up with my own mission statement, my own vision. And you learn that for any founder of a company, you can't just be driven by the business model. You have to have a core mission that helps to inform the decisions that you make, because it might not be clear what is going to be revenue driving, what is going to make you a profit 
right away, but you can use your mission as this basis, this ruler in a way to help you make decisions. So for me, elevating voices of those who are underrepresented is just so critical to my own personal mission. And it's wonderful that I get to decide that because I'm leading my own venture and I can say that to all the stakeholders and I can say that to future investors and I can just evangelize that. So it's been lovely to be able to make those decisions and not have to fight the battles within my own company, but I do still have to fight those battles with people who don't necessarily believe in that yet, which it's shocking. There's still people who don't think that inclusion and representation should be at the core of everyone's mission. It's almost like you're holding the reins of the chariot, but the the road in front of you, if it's not even paved, um, you know, <laughs> a little bit of uh, some barrier there with that. Let me 100%. ask you this, what, what are you going to miss um, about being a, uh, an anchor at Cheddar? So much. It was such a fun experience because it's one thing to be a news anchor, but at Cheddar, it was scrappy, young, everyone was hungry. Resources were limited as a result of being sort of in this startup world. But if I had an idea for a show or a segment or a guest, getting things greenlit, as long as you had good empirical evidence for why you want to do it, why you think it'd be a good segment, it was easy to yeah. get things greenlit. And I even launched two new shows in this last pandemic year before I left. One was called Fast Forward Life After COVID-19. So looking at technologies and businesses and how we live and looking at a post-COVID world. And we started this in April of 2020. So pretty early on in the pandemic. And then another was All Hands Race Toward Inclusion, which was looking at celebrating and also look, taking a critical eye to issues of diversity and inclusion across industries. And it was, I, I don't think if I worked at some other more established network, they would have so quickly greenlit that and given me the agency to come up with segments, come up with the mission statement, the value prop. So that's probably what I miss the most is being able to have these ideas and have it happen relatively quickly. Because now starting from scratch myself, I am developing a few things. It's, it's really slow. And there's a lot of powers that be, it's out of your control in the world of entertainment. And you have to jump through these hoops and there's this sense of, oh, that's just how it's always been done or that's how it should be, which is the mindset that I dislike the most is people who like to point to how it's been done in the past. So I'm navigating that, but I certainly miss the the relative speed with which we can move at, at Cheddar. Well, and it's nice to have a platform of like-minded folks who can sort of go at the same speed that you're thinking versus, you know, the sort of timeline shift becomes so different when the stakeholders are, are so mm -hmm. different as well. And yeah, are yeah. you, when it comes to having those conversations about diversity and inclusion, or even the creative process, as you build on those conversations sort of iteratively, who then becomes the new target audience? Is it actually, does it shift every single time that you have that conversation more and more broadly? Um, does the audience grow? Does it narrow? Does your message change? How have you been able to sort of mm -hmm. continue that conversation, especially as you go forward now? My audience now, who I've been talking to in launching my new venture, is other people who are in the entertainment and media space, whether it's founders or creators who are trying to work their way up in entertainment. So those are the people that I've been reaching out to and who have been reaching out to me. And those who are from marginalized backgrounds or diverse backgrounds understand my mission right away. Yeah. 
And I've found that there's more and more people in leadership positions like me, which is great. I think even a, a few years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. That wouldn't have been the story. And that's what I'm learning from these South Asian founders, Black founders of media companies. They say there's been such a huge shift in just the last year in that they can have investors who are actually interested in them or production companies who are interested in making their content. So I think my my audience of who I've been connecting with it's just so much easier now because there's people in positions that can make decisions that are like me and can believe in my mission where I don't think that was really the case a few years ago. When you're thinking about these conversations, I know that when, when I've had conversations like this, I'm always trying to be cognizant of who's not in the room mm -hmm. and who's not necessarily there to listen. So as that gets easier to do when you have other black and brown voices who are in the room or those who are listening to what you have to say, does it become easier now to project that to those who can't necessarily listen to that in the space that you're talking? I think so. The more people you have who believe in your mission and can, uh, can kind of explain the value proposition behind what you're trying to do, the better. But if we didn't have all of this, all of these external forces of this national realization yeah. of racial injustices and, and inequities, of course, we've been talking about it for decades, hundreds of years at this point. But if this new conversation, focused conversation hadn't happened, then I think there would still be resistance, even if you have a collective or a collection of diverse people trying to share that mission. So I do... I, I feel like the, the mindset is different now for people to actually receive that and understand that it, it's good business decision-making, it's good for humanity, it's just the right thing to do without us having to convince them. Yeah. Let me ask you this. You, you grew up as a Bangladeshi American in Minnesota. And, you know, are there elements of this exact precise backdrop that inform you on a day-to-day -day basis or or even that you can point to that say hey this is what keeps me linked this is what keeps me anchored and grounded i've been thinking about this a lot because i've been spending more time in minnesota than i have for the last you know decade plus because i'm not working from home i can work from my parents house which is where i am right now and I didn't really realize how much growing up in Minnesota and being really the only brown person in my school, I didn't realize how much that impacted me until until recently. Because again, with these renewed conversations, I'm seeing a lot of posts by children of immigrants. And there's this one account that I follow on Instagram that talks about mental health for children of immigrants, especially the mental health of children of South Asian uh, immigrants. And I always wanted to just be like my friends. I wanted to fit in and this is a super common story amongst children of immigrants, I would be embarrassed my mom would pack me a, a, you know, a Bengali dish that had a strong scent. And I remember one time she packed me these noodles for lunch, super delicious, ate it the night before at home. She packed me leftovers for lunch and I didn't take it out because I was too nervous that the onions would smell and people would judge me. And I was also embarrassed to take that lunch back home at the end of the day because I didn't eat it and I didn't want my mom to be upset with me. Yeah. So it sat under my desk for, I think, weeks and molded and <laughs> stenched up the whole classroom. And I still remember that to this day. Anyway, all that to say is I was so driven by fitting in back then, but now I'm so driven by being different and I'm re-embracing my Bengali heritage 
anytime there is an event, a wedding, a birthday, whatever, where I get to dress up in Bengali clothes, I will, I will be so thrilled to do that. Just last night in my mom's bedroom, I was looking through her, uh, her, her drawers, lahenga, sharis, looking at all of them to try to decide what to wear to a, a family member's wedding in a few weeks. And it's so fun. And my mom and I connect over that. So I, I definitely wish I had realized that growing up in Minnesota that I should embrace being different versus just trying to fit in. It is perhaps easier to do that for children these days because the environment is different. I wonder if our own perspectives on this have changed dramatically. I mean, I, I had Kevin Nagandi on from ESPN, and we were joking around that, like, you know, there there should or could be a day that on Diwali that he should wear a jabba and a kurta for Sports Center um, <laughs> as sort of like a mechanism of saying, "Hey, this is who I am." I, I yeah. wonder if it's easier to do that these days, especially you know, for any, uh, for any generation, not those, not just those who are in school and, and taking their, their Bengali lunch um, today. <laughs> I think it's much easier now. And it also brings up the, the debate between cultural appreciation and appropriation, because it's so, it's, it's desired now in a way to be different. It's kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum. So you have people who don't necessarily have as, you know, colorful cultures, I'll call our, our culture sure. colorful, who are trying to find ways to, to be more like that and embrace that. But sometimes it becomes too much. And we run into those issues all the time on Halloween, for example. Sure. But I do remember, and I'm thankful for this, in, in middle school, my white friends would love going through my mom's chores and trying on lehengas and celebrating my culture. So I feel like I had the sense that I wanted to fit in, but did not realize that my friends actually really liked my culture and kind of wished that they could also be Bengali sometimes. Um, but yeah, now it's much more accepted, I think, to, to be different and to even want to be different if you're not so exposed to those other cultures. I always find that for people who go through some of those moments, it's that surprise that they feel. It's that like, wow, I actually really enjoy this when the expectation for them was either of skepticism or mm -hmm. just ignorance. And when they get that sort of joy of that surprise, you know, trying on an outfit or, or seeing how vibrant that, that experience is, I wonder if it, it changes, you know, us a little bit. And for you, you're uh, an accomplished musician. You're a violinist. You're a pianist. Are these diversions for you to escape or are they kind of immersive worlds for you to enter in? I'm so curious. What a, what a lovely way to phrase that question. I think it's in a way an escape, but it hasn't always been that way. And I say that because I grew up competing. It was quite stressful, practicing for hours and hours every day. Competition stressed me out so much. And even performances used to stress me out. But I had been presented with the notion of trying to become a professional violinist. Um, in high school, my teachers had always asked me if that would be of interest to me. And I had decided pretty explicitly early on that I never wanted to pursue it professionally because then it would become a, a job, a necessity, and not just something I enjoyed. So I think it started as something that was quite stressful for me uh, in, in elementary school, middle school, high school. But then in college, I was doing it without competing. I was doing it for fun. I was with in orchestras and my friendships stemmed from from orchestra rehearsals and I was in a ton of chamber music groups and it was the most fun part of my college experience. And now I play really 
with my sisters and I play literally for fun. I'll record minute long clips and post on Instagram and people love it. And I'm like, well, that wasn't even that good, but okay. It's nice to, <laughs> nice to know that people appreciate You don't even have to be that good. I'm, I've, I've lost a lot of my skill. You don't have to be that good for people to appreciate it on social media. Yeah. So it is, it is still an escape. And I, I like, I love that people still appreciate the, the content that I put out in music. And I think it's, I think it is a surprise. I think I saw a clip of, of you playing Lil Nas X and um, it was a, it's a nice little ode to that, but it's that surprise aspect, right? I mean, people enter into a different sort of space. And I remember watching Steve Martin once on, on a late night talk show, I think it was Letterman and he breaks out the banjo and he's, I mean, he's really, really good. I, I didn't quite like, you know, equate Steve Martin with professional banjo. <laughs> You know, player, and and that's the kind of thing that you know for you even are do sometimes in in your uh, less musical spaces are people surprised to to hear when you play or are they yeah. sort of like you know hey wow that's a great aha moment for me I just learned something a little bit more about Nora yeah definitely people are surprised and it's always something that people get excited about and latch onto they ask me if I post one thing on Instagram of me playing violin and then I stop for several weeks, I, I get so many messages of, why did you stop? Can you post more? I love when you, you know, post your violin stuff because it's not my identity. You're right. It is that element of surprise. And I think they expect that I, a lot of times when people say, oh, I, you know, I grew up playing piano or violin. A lot of times you have given that up for the last few decades and you're maybe not that good, but I've tried to maintain it. Um, so I feel like I still have the dexterity to be able to play stuff not horribly and yeah. i think that surprises people as well so yeah it's definitely a conversation starter for for new people i meet too which is great let me ask you this i mean for someone in in your profession and with being a performer um in that way are you inherently a, a self-assured and and confident person i think i'm the most this is so strange i'm the most confident the more people who are watching me so with bigger audiences I, I'm super confident. It excites me. I remember my notes. I remember my words better. I think I deliver my remarks better, but I'm just not great in, relatively speaking, not as comfortable in one-on-one -on -one situations, two-on-one -on -one situations. But I think it is because I grew up performing on stages and that was my comfort zone. So my, I'm certainly an introvert and I didn't really realize that until the last few years and the pandemic especially brought that out in me. But if I'm in a, a relatively small group, I'd rather just listen and be quiet. And again, reflecting back to growing up in Minnesota, I've been doing that more since I've been home. I remember my favorite thing to do at family parties would be to grab a stool and sit next to my mom or some uncle or aunt as they sat around a table playing cards and just listen to their conversation. All the other kids would be running around, playing, whatever. I would just hang out with the adults. So in social settings, I like to listen. <clears throat> but when you put me on a stage or in front of a camera, then <laughs> then I my confidence comes out. It's a little bit strange. Well, that makes for good radio and podcasting too. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> even this one-on-one -on -one with you, Abai, is more stressful for me than staring into the barrel of a camera where thousands and thousands of people are watching as a host on Cheddar. This, this is, it's more challenging for me because it is so focused. So one-on-one -on -one. and even when I hang out with my friends, 
one-on-one -on -one interactions really exhaust me. So yeah. I prefer to have, you know, three friends together, four friends hanging out together. But most of my friends like to have that one-on-one -on -one connection. So it's this balance I've been trying to strike. Well, and the intention behind rediscovering trust in yourself as you kind of go forward and particularly now as you launch into this new venture and as we all sort of exit this this pandemic space what are you optimistic about thinking about sort of our our post-pandemic culture and and kind of your own journey as you go forward i've felt optimism weirdly enough because of <laughs> tiktok uh, it's probably not where you thought i was going with this back to Right. It all comes back to TikTok. And I say that because people are just so honest on TikTok. And I spend, unfortunately, many hours on many days just scrolling through. And people have just been so open and explicit about what they're going through, things that you might not think are relatable to others, but so many people are going through similar experiences. So I think honesty and being real with yourself and others has really come out of this last pandemic year. And I've taken that to my social interactions, interactions with my family members, and just really understanding what drives me, motivates me, what to say no to. So I'm optimistic that people are going to be more their real selves in this post-pandemic world. And I've <laughs> discovered that in many ways through TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, the vulnerabilities of folks coming through on TikTok and, and being a safe space uh, is one to remind ourselves. Nora, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been a real treat, and I hope you'll come back and join us again. Of course. You ask really good questions that got me to think about my own life. So thank you, Abhai, for having me. Thanks so much, Nora. And you can certainly learn more about Nora and her work at noraali.com. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you can find it. And don't forget to follow us on social media at MyGoodFriend. We'll hopefully dial in more on Clubhouse soon, too. Till next time, I'm Abhay Darnika. Hi, this is Jonita Gandhi, and you're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio.